I'd like you to imagine entering a movie theater or perhaps listening to an audiobook on a time when you're extremely troubled. You enter into this story through the, the movie or through the audiobook, and you are swept away into another world. It's comforting to get away from your problems. And yet, as you watch the hero on the screen or you listen to the story, you sense something else happening in your perspective. Somehow you find that the battle that's being fought is reflecting your own struggles. Soon you're caught up in the drama. By the end of the movie or the end of that audio story, you feel a strange feeling of acceleration, as if your own battle has been fought and won. Has this ever happened to you? It's happened to some. It is a fairly common experience, at least if the story is good or the movie is good. People get drawn into it if, if it's written in the right way and if people can identify with it. Whether or not that's happened to you, I want to ask you another question. Has this ever happened to you when you have read or listened to the reading of the Old Testament? This is a more important question because our story is actually written here. This is the story of our redemption. Unless we see ourselves in it, we're not going to take in the full impact of this story, even when we're shown how the text points to Jesus Christ. I want to let that truth sink into your consciousness, so I'll say it again. Unless we see ourselves as being involved in the story of redemption, as those who are benefiting from it, we're unlikely to take in the full impact of the story, even when we're shown how the Old Testament points to Christ. Man sins, but Jesus saves. That's the gospel. And if Christ is the Savior, then the question has to be answered, what did he save us from? And Investor 3 is merely a story of a Jewish man in exile who refused to bow to another man, making that man unreasonably angry. Then we might, as, might enjoy the story, but take away very little. But there's more happening here. In fact, this story is an indication to you and to me that our own battle is being fought and won. And that's part of the benefit of reading Esther chapter 3 in the context of the history of redemption. It begins uh, with these words, after these things. There's a transition that takes place. You remember that huge feast and Vashti's humiliation in chapter 1? You might re remember the king's decree and the gathering of beautiful young virgins into the harem in chapter 2. You might remember how Esther won the queen's, king's heart by following instructions, by listening, and was made queen. And you might recall Mordecai's foiling of a plot to kill the king, an act of service to the empire, for which he went unrewarded. But that's actually the background to the main story. This chapter is going to outline the crisis that will move the story forward. But it's more than a story. It's the history of our redemption. Notice I said the history of our redemption. Not just the Jewish people. The history of our redemption. And that's an important thing to remember because Esther has often been viewed as simply a Jewish story. And Christians have had a hard time fitting it into their understanding of the gospel. So how does it fit? What about this promotion of Haman instead of Mordecai? And Mordecai's refusal to bow to him. What is the issue? 
Was it merely that the promotion was given to someone else while Mordecai went unrewarded? Sour grapes and frustration that built over the years? Or was it something deeper? Was this a personal grievance on Mordecai's part? Or was it rather the first steps toward holy war? Well, the answer is to be found in the description of Haman in verse 1 of our chapter. We saw a little bit of this last time. He's called Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. You see, if this is merely a story about a personal grudge between Mordecai and Haman, then, then we're lost to explain why this phrase shows up. Why is it there? Why is it so important? Because the language appears throughout the book of Esther. Later on in our chapter, in verse 10, uh, he's again called the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Notice he is called the enemy of the Jews there. Not just Mordecai's personal enemy, not someone that Mordecai has a problem with. The enemy of the Jews. That's what he's called. And so that's giving us a clue as to what's, at, what's going on here. Then in chapter 8, we read about how Esther saves the Jews and Esther's given the house of Haman and he's specifically called the enemy of the Jews. Again, in the opening of that chapter, we read about how King Ahasuerus gives the house of Haman to Queen Esther and Mordecai set over the house of Haman. But that's way down the line. The enemy of the Jews is about to be brought down. That's what we need to see. That's the story. That's the direction in which it's going. In fact, if we were to look at the book of Esther in terms of the way that it's structured, it's called a comedy. Not the kind of comedy that you think of, yuck, yuck, you know, knock, 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 that kind of thing. It's more the kind of comedy that's in the classical sense, where the action goes down for a group of characters and then it goes back up. Where the action for the other group of characters goes up and then down. That's what's happening. Mordecai and Esther seem to be promoted, but things are going to get worse. They're going to get harder. It's going to get more difficult for all the Jewish people. They seem to be going down, down, down. But by the end of the story, there's going to be a happy ending. And that's how a comedy is structured. It goes from the uh, things getting darker and more difficult and more challenging and desperate to a resolution that results in a, in a happy ending. But it goes the opposite way for Haman. And that's the structure of the book of Esther. And so it's important that we see this language of him and the Agagite that occurs again and again throughout this book. It's, it's there in chapter 9 and verse 10. It's there in chapter 9 and verse 24. And I'm going to read just that verse to you because it's the fullest description of the full uh, statement concerning Haman that appears in the book. Chapter 9 and verse 24 Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews. The enemy of all the Jews. This is not just a personal grievance with Mordecai. There's something bigger going on here. There's something that involves all of the Jewish people who are in Persia. All of the Jewish people at this particular time. The enemy of all the Jews, not just Haman. is casting lots to try to crush and destroy them, to try to find out the best day in which to do it. So this is something bigger than simply 
the conflict between Mordecai and Haman. But notice that what we're told about Mordecai in verse 4 is specifically ethnic. We're told he was a Jew. That's what we're told. We're not told specifically why he refused to bow. We're not told uh, any of those other details except the fact that he was a Jew and that Haman is an Agagite. Those are the two things that we're told, and that helps us to understand uh, what's going on. King Ahasuerus has promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, advanced and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman because they were supposed to. The king had commanded concerning him. It's the king's command. The command of the king goes in Persia. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Mordecai is refusing to do something that the king commanded. So the king's servants speak to him. uh, As it says, uh, why did you transgress the king's command? They want to know. And they speak to him daily, and he would not listen to them. He would not bow. He would not pay attention to their exhortations to listen to the king's command. You're in Persia right now. Do you realize the importance of this? Mordecai, you better start bowing. He would not listen. So then they want to know. If they tell Haman about it, if Mordecai's uh, words are going to stand because he told them that he was a Jew. Remember, Mordecai told Esther not to reveal her identity. But now his Jewish identity is being openly discussed between the king's servants and Haman. They're telling Haman about it. Something is building here. And Haman, in verse 5, sees that Mordecai does not bow or pay, pay homage to him. And he is filled with what? Wrath. Now in Hebrew, Haman's name sounds like the word for wrath. Hamah. Related to the word Hamas that some of you know. The word Hamah, the word for wrath. And that's exactly the way that Haman responded. According to his name, he was filled with fury. He was filled with wrath. Why? Because of the fact that all, of the, all that the text tells us is that he was an Agagite. And because Mordecai, as much as he wanted to fit into the empire, along with his cousin Esther, was, we learn from chapter 2 and verse 5, a son of Kish. A connection to King Saul. And that battle that we saw last time when we read 1 Samuel 15, when King Saul did not follow through on what God said to do in Deuteronomy 25 in the passage that we just read to do battle to destroy the Amalekites. This is the battle against the ancient tribal enemies of the, of the people of God. And God is doing something in this time in redemptive history. Everything else is stripped away. It's like if you know a particular uh, statue and you you know it so well that it can be just presented to you in silhouette 
and you're able to say, I know this statue. You're able to just know it from the outlines. The Amalekites are here. Everything else is stripped away. There's no uh, holy war in the traditional sense, the way that it would happen in the land, people going in and, and claiming the land. The land belongs to the Persians. There's no place to sacrifice. There's no mention of God in the book. Prayer is, is only suggested through fasting. It's not there explicitly. There's no concern for the dietary laws like Daniel had in, in, in his day. None of that. It's all stripped away down to Agagite and Jewish people. It's as if the word of God is saying, we're going to show you just one aspect of God's providential work, how he is working out the history of redemption, and we're going to focus it on this one thing. The Amalekites and the Jews. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. He was the one that the king Saul was supposed to wipe out, and he didn't. And Samuel ended up hacking him to pieces. But God had said in the time of the Exodus, in Exodus 17, that, that he would blot out their name from under heaven, and he would uh, fight with them from generation to generation. And so when King Saul did not follow through, uh, Samuel did. But here's Haman. He appears again in that same word Agagite shows up. And the only thing that we have in this chapter that gives us a clue as to why Mordecai refused to bow is that something's stirring in him. In the presence of an Agagite. Something is stirring in him that it involves an ancient battle. A battle that's being fought. That involves Mordecai in ways that require him to take action, to stand against. Everything else that Mordecai has done, pretty much, has been, has been following the, the ways of Persia. He's assimilated to the culture, just like Esther. Esther has become part of the culture. She's the queen now. She followed the pattern of what, what people were supposed to do in this, in this big pageant that they had to try to find a, a queen for the king. But this is where Mordecai draws the line. This is where Mordecai begins to stand against the kingdom of Persia. Over this, an Agagite. It's bigger than we think. Mordecai, like King Saul, is a son of Kish. And even though Mordecai is in a foreign land, and his story appears in a book that doesn't mention the name of God, Mordecai is one of God's chosen people. He's one of the Jews. And he begins to act like it. He begins to do something that King Saul didn't do. He's going to take on this enemy of the Jews. But there's another bit of tension to this story because this isn't like the holy war in the land that we saw in the book of Joshua. This is a time of the exile. And so things are going to happen differently. At this point in the history of redemption, God's pe people find themselves outside the context of the covenant given at Sinai in the book of Exodus, without a king, without a prophet like Samuel, without a land to call their own, without a temple or priesthood, and without the system of sacrifices. So the question becomes, will God hear us? Is God really going to intervene? This is the question that the Jewish people asked when they were in exile. 
Does God continue to be on our side? Or has He abandoned us? Are we a disobedient covenant people under His judgment? Is He now using the fury of the enemies of God's people to wipe us out? That's a question that the Jewish people will be asking in the book of Esther. It might seem like a comedy, and I initially mentioned as we started the book of Esther that it was satire, that they were poking fun of the, of the Persians and, and, their, and their exaggerated you know, efforts at, at exerting their power. But that's all after the fact. After the story is resolved, after everything happens according to God's plan, and the feast is being celebrated year by year, they look back and they can laugh. But in the middle of it, there was anxious. Anxiety. There was concern. Did God really want the Persians to wipe us out by means of Haman? But amazingly, the way that God shows his hand is through uh, a strange process, the casting of a lot. Now, in the, in the book of Joshua, the, the lot was used to divide up the land. But here, it's being used by a pagan, by Heman, to try to discern the best day, the most favorable day to kill Jews. Superstition to the max. What would be the best day when the fates would allow me? to get rid of as many Jews as possible. I mean, you've got to be thinking about Adolf Hitler here. Six million Jews. I went to a public high school and we watched film strips in, in some of our classes and we watched piles and piles of shoes being stored in a room. Shoes that belong to people. And this is the kind of man that's Casting these lots. Haman, the one whose name means wrath. The furious descendant of Agag. Verse 6 tells us that he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. That's not enough. I could take him up. But I want more. The bloodlust of Haman. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of King Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. If that happens, the line of Jesus Christ is broken. One man's life is not enough. Haman has been publicly disrespected in the king's gates. All the king's servants have witnessed his refusal to bow to him. So to simply get personal revenge on Mordecai is not enough. The whole people must pay for his public humiliation. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom must be burned up by Haman's terrible fury. Who does that sound like? You know who's motivating him. The story has been taking place since the Garden of Eden. 
the seed of the serpent is seeking to attack the seed of the woman. That great battle that we saw in Revelation 12, the battle involving the ancient serpent and seeking to devour the child, the male child. You know that's Jesus Christ. But what is that serpent doing? That serpent is desiring to present accusations before the living God day and night about the people of God. You, that's where you come into the story. This one, this devil was presenting a record. Look at your people. Look at what they think and do and what they're like. Just get rid of them. The same kind of approach that Haman has, motivated by the devil's fury, fury of that ancient serpent. So this story is far more wide-reaching than first thought. It's not just a story about the Jews in exile. It's certainly not a story that only concerns Mordecai and Haman. Mordecai and Esther. It's a story of the warfare of Satan himself against the people of God. It's reflected in the Agagites. It's reflected in the Amalekites and their uh, connection to Haman. It's Haman versus Mordecai. But they stand as representatives. Mordecai represents all the people. And so Haman wants to wipe them all out because of Mordecai. He won't bow. All of his people must go. This is holy war. This is how it's fought. David versus Goliath, they're representatives. Christ and Satan. And Jesus will win for his people. Jesus will defeat the enemy. The evil one is the one stirring Haman's heart to this level of murderous rage. He's the one who sought to leap upon God's people at their weakest point. The point in which the, their loyalty to the Persian Empire might rival their loyalty to the Lord. Just bow, Mordecai. You're in Persia. Just bow. That's what we do here. Come on, man. Don't put, get yourself in trouble. What are you nuts? Satan is whispering. This battle isn't worth fighting. Just let him win. But something is stirring in Mordecai because the Holy Spirit has given us this story in very simple terms so that we see uh, just the basic battle. The people of God versus the enemies of God. And the people of God represented by ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ against the enemies of God represented by the devil. So Haman and Mordecai are like the silhouettes and behind them is the full color picture of Satan battling against the seed of the woman. An older battle than the battle of Israel and Amalek and a battle that continues today. Because this is what it says in the word of God concerning this battle. <clears throat> we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. This is your story. It's the story of our redemption. Do you see it? It's the story of the battle against the evil one and all of his, all of his hosts. And it's the battle that has been won by the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's the battle that rages today because the devil, as we saw in Revelation 12, has been cast down. He cannot do what he wants to do in the heavenly realm, accuse the people of God day and night. The record is clean there because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The battle has been won. So we read this story with new interest now. Haman wants to know the best day in which to massacre God's people. He shows himself to be very religious. Like Acts 17.22, he consults the fates. What's the best day in which to carry out my plan? The Proverbs 16 tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Haman could not simply decide to wipe out God's people. He needed the king to agree. So having thrown the dice, which is what the lot kind of looked like, according to archaeologists, he then approaches the king, and the king is rather oblivious to what's going on. No surprise. Consistent with his ignorance concerning Mordecai's foiling of the plot against his life and his lack of wisdom and listening to his advisors at the end of chapter 1. Because, as we're reminded... We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Your battle is not simply against King Ahasuerus. Even his foolishness and lack of ability to know what's going on as Haman seeks to implement his revenge. So the king listens to a rather general description of the threat, and then he hands over the signet ring. The signet ring, which is used to seal decisions. It's the ring of power. It's the one that you put uh, on, a, on a decision, a decree, and it makes it binding so that even the king can't change it. The description of the plans to lay out God's people is given. But notice something. Haman never mentions that they are the Jews. Clever. Clever like the serpent as he talked to Eve in the garden. Clever. There's a certain people, verse 8, scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples. Is that true? They have different laws, but they follow the Persian laws. They're following the laws of Persia. They do not keep the king's laws. That's not true. They're keeping the king's laws. They do have laws that are different, but the idea that their laws are are keeping them from keeping the king's laws. Not true. Therefore, it's not fitting to let the, to, for the king to let them remain. He's presented a general vague threat. He never mentions it's the Jewish people. A certain people, the enemy, 
And then I have a plan. Now you need to know that King Ahasuerus came back from Greece licking his wounds. He was losing money. He was losing respect. He lost so much. So he's ripe for a bribe. And King and Haman, the second in command now, says, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work. 10,000 talents of silver is half the revenue from taxes of the Persian Empire at this time. 10,000 talents is a lot of money. That would go into the king's treasuries to make this plan possible. So the king responds to this general statement, uh, vague, very wisely worded, carefully, in order to accomplish what Haman wanted. And he gets the ring of power. And then the king says to Haman, chilling words, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. You have the money. Spend it on your activities to make sure that this threat goes away. And the people, it's up to you. That kind of apathy on the part of a ruler, which we even see today, is an activity of the evil one. The description of the plans to kill God's people is laid out in chillingly cold and impersonal terms. And the king and Haman sit down to drink. Mass murder has been planned. And they sit down to have a drink. It looks like the end. Until you consider the way that the living God has orchestrated the lot. The day in which the lot is fallen, uh, it says in uh, verse 7 that they cast poor to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and the decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. Haman cast a lot on the first month, Nisan, the month that the, the Jews celebrate the Passover. It falls on the uh, 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Haman will have to wait 11 months for the day that the fates determine the best day to attack the Jews. But he sends out a decree sealing their fate. The edict of death is sent out, as verse 12 tells us, on the 13th day of the first month. Now, if you were a Jewish person, you would recognize that the 13th day of the first month of the year is the night before Passover. Passover occurs on the 14th day of the first month. And so for Jews, this is as far as it looks, as low as it can possibly be. This is a day, even though we're in Persia, we know the day of Passover is an important day for the Jewish people. And it's going to be a day in which this edict is signed. 
to wipe out all the Jews? It's either the most terrible of news or it's the most wonderful. Is the joy of Passover going to turn to sorrow? Or is the joy of Passover pointing the way back to the way in which God is going to keep his covenant promises? We don't really know what Mordecai thinks at this point. But there are indications in the next chapter, which we'll cover next week, uh, that he expects something to happen from another place. He says to Esther in chapter 4, in verse 14, If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows? whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai senses that there is a possibility of deliverance coming from another place. Of course, we know the end of the story. We know the end of the story not only because we know all the way to Esther 9, but we know that the Passover points forward to a greater deliverance yet to come. In fact, in the New Testament, after the death of of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is called our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5. The people in the time of Esther are not clear on precisely what's taking place, precisely how the deliverance is going to happen. But the fact that the lot falls on the, on the day that the edict is written and it, and it appears at the time of Passover is a clue. And you know that there is a day that is now here when God is continuing to uh, demonstrate the way in which uh, Christ, the Passover lamb, sets us free. He's been raised. He's the divine warrior. He has fought the holy war against the enemies of God. In Revelation 12, he cast down the ancient serpent through his death and resurrection. And that serpent can no longer accuse us before God's throne as he was doing before day and night. And that serpent continues to battle against God's people. He continues to seek our allegiance. He continues to try to take us out. But today... God has a way of dealing with his enemies. It's called evangelism. God has a way of dealing with his enemies before the day of judgment, and it's called conversion. We were converted. Ephesians 2 tells us we were initially uh, children of wrath. We were those who were transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. We are those who have been transferred. We are those who have received the benefit of the Passover lamb, the deliverance that was provided for us. We are those who have benefited from the uh, way in which the devil has been cast out of the of the throne room of God where he sought to accuse God's people day and night. So what is happening in these moments 
when you don't see the entire picture, when you only see the picture in terms of stark shadows, when it only looks as though it's the people of God against the enemy of God, it looks like it's us against the devil. Don't forget that he's provided through Jesus Christ, the victor, the deliverer, the means by which God's people are raised up in the first place. There is no enemy of God's people who can resist the Holy Spirit wrought transformation of their lives through union with Jesus Christ. Jesus wins. And that story is a story of your deliverance. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way in which the deliverance of your people in the story of Esther, even this U-shaped pattern of, of the plot, this resolution on behalf of the people of God by the end of the book, only gives us the beginning of something that escalates and takes on more dimensions through the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you that this ancient conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is revealed here in Esther 3, because we recognize that this means that even in Persia, even when things are so stripped away that all we see is an Agagite and someone who is Jewish, that you are showing that this battle is ultimately going to be victorious on the side of the seed of the woman. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ because he's given us more than just shadow pictures in him. You've given us more than just the story that the audiobook finishes and makes us excited because we felt like our story was, was included and we have won. You have given us knowledge of what it means to be on the side of the victor. The Lord Jesus Christ and the application of the person and work of Jesus Christ by your spirit is so powerful that your enemies become your people. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to recognize that this is the wonder of what you are doing here in the time in which we live. We know that we don't wrestle against principalities and powers. We wrestle not against, we wrestle against principalities and powers, but not against flesh and blood. We know that we wrestle against spiritual forces, but we know that Jesus is able to defeat those forces. And we know that the devil himself cannot claim someone who belongs to Jesus Christ. If you're able to orchestrate the hints of deliverance through the casting of a lot and the day in which it falls, if you're able to uh, demonstrate in stark relief the difference between uh, a Jewish person, uh, even separated from his land, and the enemies of God, surely we are highly privileged 
We'll be living in a time in which you spelled out every detail of your redemptive plan and made it clear what all these types and shadows and pictures pointed to and gave us the full orbed picture of the work of Jesus Christ. And you even showed us the scene in heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ was the means by which the devil was cast down, unable to accuse us before your throne. Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would grant to us that we would hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would hold fast to you and that we would uh, not be those who succumb to the activities of uh, principalities and powers that represent spiritual forces of wickedness. And we ask that you will give us confidence in the deliverance that you have not only promised, but that you have already accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please convert and transform your enemies through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may the Lord Jesus Christ receive all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.